0: Okay, so we're here, uh, Game Dev Grit, episode six, and our guest today is the first programmer developer. So far, we've been all designer developers, and it's Ash Blue. So Ash, tell us a little bit about your background and your experience with games and all that stuff.
1: Okay, so uh, I guess the quick one-on-one about me is uh, uh, originally my experience with games was uh, I was getting into web development uh, back in around, I think, 2006. And around then, uh, HTML5 games a few years later kind of started to come out as I was getting into web dev and uh, got into 2D game making with JS, which is a little uh, HTML5 engine, not even sure if it's still around anymore. But got started with that and um, started doing a lot of game jams, playing around and tinkering with things, uh, probably did around a dozen or so game jams and then moved over to working on a Four to five about four year project um, that ended up not working out, which was kind of sad, but worked on a project called Dragon name Cole. There's a trailers of it, a lot of information online, a playable demo. Um, we put that together, tried to figure out funding and some other things with it and uh, with the game, mostly I partner with my wife uh, Rachel. We collaborate and work on story. Um, she mainly does art. I do the programming side of things um, so we did that. And Dragon Name Cole didn't quite work out. We tried to figure out uh, funding, just didn't go through. Then we started uh, pivoting on to working on a project called The Wanderer, which is essentially in the same universe and using a lot of the tech from a dragon named Cole to kind of boot things up quickly and get together. And that uh, is a little bit of a deviation. So, Dragon Name Cole was originally a, a platformer action adventure, and The Wanderer is more of a JRPG uh style game that has like a lot of uh, similar storytelling and elements and characters so that that is kind of my i guess experience in game development
0: so tell us um uh we've done this a couple times in the last couple shows when i asked people what were the landmines you stepped on in that project um that caused your legs to be blown off and caused you to crawl around like we all do and go oh god what's happening what were those things on that project
1: Oh man, one really uh devastating thing uh that was a big regret was uh how we initially tried to kind of like work with people on the project. Cause like mostly like now with what I'm doing, it's mostly just Rachel and I. And we tried to work with um a couple of different friends we thought would be good to work with on the project, which kind of just bombed out. Like a friend of mine I was supposed to be working with on uh for narrative. Um we were asking way more than we realized <laughs> for him to work with us on stuff. I mean, we were paying people to work on the projects like out of our own pocket. Um, and I remember like we had deadlines, and he just kind of kept missing them. For example, and he was a good friend of mine. And then it's like all of a sudden, it's like, hey, my friend isn't showing up for, uh, <laughs> you know, like game nights to play D and D. Is everything okay? Because he was just really ashamed that he wasn't able to hit deadlines because. Uh, you know, starting out the project, none of us really knew what we were like asking for. And Rachel and I, like, it was our baby, you know, and I think we were asking a lot more than we realized. Like now we're much more cautious about that type of stuff. But um, yeah, <laughs> that was yeah, a mistake.
0: I, I have this thing where I'm like, you know who your real friends are? The ones when you, you tell them you're moving and the ones that show up to help you physically move. Like, those are your real friends, so maybe there's a game dev lesson in there, too. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not saying the dude's not your real friend, but it's, like, you you put your friendships, because I, I had a big project, not in games. There were It was, like, with my good friend that really put our friendship to the test. And, um, yeah, that's a tough thing, like, working with friends. And I kind of went in a direction now where I'm just, like, I just want to hire people, because it's so weird. It's so easy to, like, flake out on your friends, because, like, hey, it's cool, right, man? You know, so...
1: Yeah, we definitely found like working with people is a—it's a tricky thing. Um, and like, actually, the probably the huge uh, mistake that actually, in some ways, destroyed the project was uh, we tried to work with too many people in the pre-production phase. And really, what we should have been doing was working with people in the post-production phase. Um, and we got started, this, I had no clue, like you know, of I, you know, like thinking about your you know planning and everything. Of like, oh, you know, you have this like pre-production you have this production and then you have this post-production and like, you know, what happens in those phases and, you know, how do you break it up? And we, we really found that like, we tried to bring people in pre-prod, didn't work. And production, it kind of created a lot of land. Then it was like, oh, actually, if we need to just polish things and bring people in of like, you know, stuff that would take us a ton of time that someone can quickly do, um, that seems to be, you know, the time to get people in there.
0: So was one of the issues with bringing people in too early, like in pre-production, was it there was too many ideas? Like you were still forming the ideas or the base of the game and there was too much input? Or what What was one of the things that really made it complicated?
1: That's a great question. Um, often a time, I think, uh, I end up realizing, I'm like, wow, I'm kind of an asshole right now uh, with <laughs> bringing people in right now. Because like you said, we would be like, oh, we think this idea, you know, works. And we'd be like, oh, hey, like, I think this is good. And the other person, we talk with them, you know, we'd work it out. We'd be like, yeah, they're like, hey, that sounds good. I can do that. And then, you know, they'd go to execute and both them and us, and we'd all be kind of like, no, this isn't working.
0: <laughs> I see. So- yeah, and
1: it would be really sad for everyone. Of all, be like, oh, maybe we should have, like, we probably need to, you know, test this stuff out more before we try to, like, you know, really try to execute with a group.
0: So it would be to lock everything in in pre-production, and then you're just getting people to execute what's already been decided.
1: Yeah. Well, even like now, like what we're trying to do with the Wanderers, we're trying to uh, you know take some of these lessons, and we're essentially building out like in-, in game dev. So many people talk about you know like building a vertical slice. You know, you got to have this like vertical slice. You know, to like demo it and like talk to people and all this stuff. And instead, we were like, okay, we're, we're completely throwing that idea out. Instead, what we're doing is we're building a horizontal um, of an act one of a three-act structure right now. And we're about a third of the way, actually, through getting the, the first uh, act done. And we're just building out this smooth, horizontal slice um, with a lot of decoupled graphics and a lot of decoupled dependencies. And we're trying to make it so um, we can... Then, you know, once that's good and stable we can actually bring other people in and they can already see like oh this is how everything works here's all the mechanics you know here's a rough cut of kind of maybe like crappy story um or you know 3d models or whatever and oh i can come in and you know easily polish that up you know with a very estimatable chunk of my time
0: so one of the issues was was it that the the structure wasn't fully solidified when the people were in there so it's like with this one it's like okay you're making the horizontal structure solid so people just need to fill in the blanks or polish what's already there
1: yeah polish i think would be the accurate term because if you bring people into your project at least this is from my experience and like you know you don't have kind of those polish levels and uh we're not polished the everything kind of like thought out and laid out it's really hard for you know people to catch that vision and you know engage in it Especially when it's just like you as an individual, you're going to end up, you know, spending all of your time trying to clean things up just for that individual person. When probably that time, you know, better spent uh, going through and you know working on assets and pulling things together to create a, a more cohesive vision to share with people.
0: So um, you were saying, I know you're the, the main developer, the programmer on your team, and so if you were to go do it again, or maybe what you're doing with this project. I mean, because you're you're handling the the code aspect, the the architecture of the project, the narrative, all these different things. So is there an an order that you will go forward with now, like narrative structure first, uh, architecture first? Like, have you changed anything or how are you approaching this new project?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. So Rachel and I have talked about this a bit. We actually um, have taken things and broken it up into pillars for starters. So I think our three pillars for this game, what was it? Narrative, exploration, and combat. And then anything that kind of doesn't fit into those pillars, we just literally throw out. So And then uh, when we're doing our uh, sprint planning, so we kind of uh, work on everything in iterative passes. Uh, Generally, each iterative pass is focused on completing a single scene. And then adding um, some additional features and mechanics um, while making that you know scene pass.
0: Okay, and I know I think you mentioned a, uh, something about Scrum there. You said sprint, right?
1: Yes. So we have a um, Kanban based format, which is kind of a variation of Scrum, where essentially you have you know visual board with tickets on it, and essentially we kind of go through um well, Rachel and I, because we kind of have decoupled our uh, sprints from each other because she has like an art sprint and then I have a separate development sprint. Um And then we kind of, you know, try to make those line up a little bit, but there's only so much, you know, we can do between the two. I mean, I can talk more about like the process of like how I put those sprints together.
0: Yeah, like what are the main takeaways for someone who's not, doesn't have any experience in Scrum or the agile development? Um So it's like, let's just say, there's a couple levels of people. Say, I don't plan anything at all. I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing. And then let's say another level is that, okay, I use something like Trello or hack and plan where I have like a task list and I just have planned, in progress, finished. How can, what can I integrate from Scrum to make it make more sense to me or help me? Cause I I think it's the priority thing, right?
1: Yeah, so like with Scrum, there's a couple things that I do to like make sure I get, you know, my priorities right every sprint. Um for starters I would say if someone who doesn't know anything just go and get a Trello board. Um that is like definitely the easiest way to start. There's definitely arguments to be made that there are better Sorry, you hopefully you can't hear all the sirens outside, can you? No. Oh, good. Okay, cuz there's like a million fire trucks going by my place right now. Sorry, but <laughs> Um so essentially we get Kanban board and then I just kind of, you know, sit down, I then just throw everything I kind of like, you know, want to do in a pass. So I just throw it down on the board. And then essentially, I go through every ticket I put on the board, and I assign uh, what they call story points. And story points are kind of a Fibonacci sequence um, type format of like, was it 1, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, I think. And I go through, and I kind of assign these arbitrary points. And if you're not used to doing story points, uh, a lot of people do what they call just t-shirt sizes, so small, medium, large. And then I go through and I evaluate, um, you know, how many points are in those tickets. And I've done it now, like, for a couple of years. So I actually know, like, because like, the story points are just an arbitrary, you know, number of like, oh, hey, you know, like a one means it'll take like a day versus, um, you know, like maybe a day and a half to two. And then like three means, you know, something and so on and so forth. And
0: is it all time based or is it difficulty or what is the weight that that number a cl- represents?
1: That is a great question. Um, Books on this subject will tell you it's just kind of an arbitrary number that's relative to each team. But um, generally a point, just for me and my personal recordings, because I work on the game about anywhere from one to three hours every day, Um, one point means roughly a day for me. So, And then three points could be three to five days. Eight points is a week. Um and 13 means oh shit don't do that you're gonna <laughs> this is a really bad idea <laughs> you need to break that ticket up and usually the the beauty about this is is I can put all these points on my tickets and look at my point total and right now uh, if I go over what was it I should actually have my sprint board right in front of me if I go over four, start going over 50 points or I'm around 50 points I know I've got a little bit too much and I need to take out and it's interesting because when you do that. Uh, You know, you get these like crazy ideas, you know, when you work on games. Like they're always coming. You never stop having new ideas. And you can actually see those and then go, oh, you know, maybe I should pull this out of this sprint. And it actually helps you determine like what ideas are actually important versus like what ideas might be, you know, like, oh, I don't really need that maybe for the game as a whole. Like sometimes I'll have an idea, you know, in like one iteration and then like four iterations up. Like later it's still sitting in my uh next iteration column to go in. And I'm like, you know what? I keep, you know, putting this thing to the backlog. Is it really that important? Do I really need this to ship this, you know, product? Um it helps you kind of determine what is a good and not good idea. At the same time, though, like the first time someone goes through and do this, you're gonna be crap at it. Um <laughs> Uh I know I was when I first started doing it. It was just like i like I have no clue if, like you know what these points are or what they mean or how I'm gonna use them um and especially like switching from being like full time to part time it really uh uh can also change like how you think about your storyboards, so like someone who's full time working on a game, their point system is gonna mean something you know totally different versus like me who does a couple hours every day.
0: So let me ask you this. So, all right, I'm using something like Trello and I have my um, planned in progress um, finished. So this is what's happened to me a lot that I'm trying to change or adapt to. I'll have a task that I'm currently working on. I don't have any weight. I don't have any points. Days go by and I'm on the same task. My board's not getting smaller. And then I start feeling like, wow, why am I still on this one thing? Like, why is this taking so long? Am I getting behind? So it's the points that would change that for me, right?
1: Yeah, because the idea would be to help prevent that is like that idea. Um, And you you sometimes have to do a little research before you kind of start your sprints just to make sure, you know, you're not biting off too much. But hopefully you'd see like a 13-point ticket. And then you would, you know, stop when you're putting it together and be like, oh, man, that's a 13-point ticket. I better break that up into... Uh, you know smaller bits and then it's you get into you know this interesting conundrum where it's like well i broke it up into two but like let's say uh or maybe broke it up into four you know eight point tickets or something like that or five point tickets and you might only take a few of those essential pieces and then put the non-essential pieces in a column that's you know for the next sprint
0: would it be something, this this is my my new programmer brain trying to make sense of it. So I'm reading stuff like in the clean code book where it said, if a class is too big, break it up into smaller classes. So is it the same thing with like the tasks? If there are too many points. You were saying you break it down into smaller pieces.
1: Yeah. So like, uh, for example, um, let's say I have a ticket to create a um, new companion character. And a new companion character is going to require me to create like a new AI navigation system. It's gonna require me to add some like uh skill tree stuff, you know, like a bunch of things like a companion might have to have in a JRPG. Um so essentially, you know, that would maybe be like a 21 point ticket, and then I'd, you know, start to slice those little bits out. So it's like, okay, I do want to create a companion character, but this story point system is forcing me to create a roadmap to get there. So I'm not trying to do it all at once.
0: And that's so funny because I actually have a task. It's like make working companion, <laughs> and like, that's that's actually the one that I was bummed out on. Cause like, God, why is this taking so long? Cause then the the companion can fire weapons, so you know targeting system. But I just had it as one task, so okay. Oh,
1: it's so easy to do. I still do it, even with the story pointing system on the occasion. But um, it, yeah, because you you get you know passionate about these ideas, and you put them on the board, and you're like, oh, this is gonna be awesome. At the end, of, you know, iteration, like. Anyone who saw the last one is gonna be, you know, so impressed by this, and then these bigger tasks you just kinda of go, oh crap, like I need to build, you know, five separate micro systems to support this one singular system. Like, I just finished a, our skill tree system for the game, like this iteration, and I like started it back in January. <laughs> yeah. So it's five months later, hey, actually have skill trees that work. So
0: So uh, being a developer uh, or coming from programming and being a game developer, everyone so far it's been on has been a designer or an artist. So to us, code newbies, dummies, what do you see us doing wrong over and over and over and over from your perspective that we can change and make our work and our games easier and more fun to work on?
1: Ooh, so big one that pops out to me um, is using version control properly. Is a one that can like really, really help uh, game devs a lot. I think, um, or people who you know are coming from more of an art background and then trying to get into programming. It's something that's a pain to learn upfront. Like, definitely learn Git. There's like Git perforce, SVN. Git is the one to stick with. It's definitely becoming more and more dominant in the industry and has the best learning resources to get started with it. And it's the most accessible. Um, like perforce, like you have to pay like what is it like a? It's it's a crazy cost. Like, it actually costs money just to get a license to use it, I believe. But there's some sort of free tier, but I don't know how it works now.
0: And would that just be for, like, uh, scripts and stuff? Because it's like, let's say I'm using Git, the regular um, GitHub account, and then my my uh, project is, like, 20 gigs, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you So just yeah, ignore. so you do have
1: to use, like, there is Git, but then there's another thing you have to pair it with, which is also has a little bit of a learning curve with it, and that's Git LFS. I don't know if you've worked with that at all.
0: I've seen it, but, yeah, I haven't used it.
1: It's actually pretty easy to use. You just have to like run a command and it hooks it up. Now the catch is like uh, um you have to pay a little bit of money for git lfs because like what it is is like normally um git just checks in like binary. So git just goes, hey, like, you know, zero one zero zero zero. I'm gonna put this in the, the repo. And oh, you know, this um, chunk of code you have here versus this one, you know, are different with these zeros and ones. Because it just overlays the zeros and ones. That's how it works on the back end. Now the problem is, is like what you said. Once you've got like a a one gig file in there or a hundred megabyte file, it like freaks out because it's trying to overlay like all those zeros and ones with a hundred megabyte file. What could go wrong? Uh, you know. So and then Git LFS is like okay, instead of you know putting those files in the repository, I'm gonna like store those in like a secret Dropbox repo that's only accessible to your uh, project, and it actually checks those files in full. So that way it just it actually just collects versions instead of trying to overlay the zeros and ones. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: Yeah, for me, I looked, I, I started running Git and was doing some stuff, but I what I ended up doing, since it's just me working on the project, I just use Unity Collaborate and it's kind of like a poor man's. It, it does have them all backed up on the cloud. You can go through the different versions. It's kind of clunky to go fetch them, but so far it's worked for me.
1: Oh yeah, Unity Collaborate is great. The catch is like once you start working with like, Two or three people. Um, or even if you start to get in any sort of complex release system. So this is like one of the things where Unity kind of breaks down. And you have to start building your own tools, is like how do you get, you know, like releases out? How do you um you know start to kind of version things in a very specific way? I'm not sure to collaborate last I checked Collaborate didn't have tools for that, does it?
0: I'm not sure. I've just been using it to back up my files and sometimes revert.
1: No, fair enough. Yeah, like I've been experimenting with Unity um like building custom cloud build pipelines because uh one of the things we've talked about is eventually once we get to prime time, you know, we start like deploying some sort of early access, we don't want to be like writing change logs and doing all sorts of like, you know, boring tasks that you know you wanna make a game, you don't want to like write changelogs. So there's like actually programs out there, like there's a thing called semantic release, um, which you can tie into Unity. And essentially, it will actually take your commit logs for your commits, and it will turn them into uh, publishable change logs. So, yeah, it's really cool technology out there. Also, too, it can automatically kind of uh, handle your versioning um, for your version numbers just by uh, looking at your commits. I actually do that a lot in my uh, day job. I do a lot of CI/CD type stuff, which is uh, continuous integration and continuous deployment which is just making sure that crap doesn't break uh, when you commit it pretty much with uh, sorts of like checks and hooks.
0: Okay, designer devs, take note. And if you're not using version control, start using it. If you heard our, our last podcast, oh sorry, uh, we were, I was talking about how I think Unity seduces people where then at first it seems like everything works and I can make these games. But then once you get deep into Unity and trying to ship real games, you start to learn that a lot of it is like broken and you have to remake and redo all the stuff yourself. Would you agree with that? If you heard the last episode about how it seduces you and then you're like, this is not optimized. I need to write my own update function, blah, blah, blah.
1: Oh yeah, and I have a an IRL story for that too. <laughs> oh man. Um. So when we published a Dragon Named Cole demo on GameJolt, which did... Actually, like really well, um I think we had like the, the analytics said we had like fifty thousand people played it the first month that we put it out, which was just uh, like blew my mind um but then at the same time when people kind of like started like finding like all these like weird bugs on the game, we were like, well, what's going on? We actually started looking into a bunch of the assets that we had gotten from the asset store <laughs> and i I love unity there are great assets out there, but like word of caution, don't use assets that have like ten like positive reviews, which are probably reviewed like by their friends or something. Like get assets that are like battle hardened that you know like people actually recommend. Like playmaker is like great. Behavior designer is, you know, great. But we had used a bunch of crap that did like these like niche things in the game. And oh man did it bite us hard. Like we were like well I was scrambling to like fix things and Rachel was scrambling to like help get like code out of the system and uh, like oh it was terrible because we had all these like very prevalent bugs and it's like we can't just get these out of here because these systems are so integrated so pretty much i remember with the dragon name cole i just spent like a year just unwriting all that crap out of there and if i had maybe just built a prototype using those it would have been fine but like something actually to like publish and put in front of people with a lot of those libraries oh it was a terrible mistake i remember one night just sitting in a corner crying, realizing how much work I had to do to get those out and get them fixed because the publishers just ghosted.
0: Yeah, and there's something I found. There's so many anomalies in Unity that will be in the editor but not in builds or will not be in the editor but will be in builds.
1: Oh, yeah. No, that is super common, especially because, well, here's the catch. is like A lot of these like plugins, um, people just kind of strip them from a pre-existing project and throw them out there which is great all in all but the unity asset store like definitely needs some sort of quality control system like there's some plugins that are well known i won't name them here to be nice um, but like you expect code to have a namespace like it's like a basic 101 thing you know like code should always have like a wrapper around you know the class names because you know if someone you know creates like a class name of like duck let's say right or jump
0: or you and kill... You-
1: yeah you till and, and then you put that in your project um you know everything is going to explode because their plugin doesn't have a namespace unless you go in and wrap it and, and screw around with it and i remember like opening up a 2d shader library that was very well reviewed on unity and i was like what the heck is this like there's no namespaces like the code is like Looks like it was converted from a program. It doesn't act like it was actually like written in c sharp and uh, oh man, like some of the things on there and it's just like like I really wish Unity would come up with like a set of standards of like you have to do you know these specific things you know to get into the asset store and they sadly don't have those, so it's a bit of a roulette sometimes picking up assets and you can be out of the pocket like over fifty bucks too.
0: Yeah, I found that with art assets too. Like they don't follow any naming conventions. So it'll just be all the meshes dumped and it'll just be like mesh 001, mesh 002. And there's no folder structure or anything. So I think it's it's with art too. People just kind of dump it and like, you know, want the money. So.
1: Oh man, really? I, I, I always assumed like, you know, be, <laughs> being on the coding end, I'm like, oh man, I remember one night I was like, must be so much easier just to get art assets and work with them. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> oh, they'll get you too. <laughs>
1: Grass is always greener on the other side, right?
0: Yeah, so something also I wanted to talk to you about, because in uh, several of the episodes, we've talked a lot about Artistry Draft, and you were the one that pointed me in that direction. So um, were you using that on uh, a dragon named Cole? Did you start it on your new one? How do you use it? How how do you see it being leveraged to the most advantage to a developer?
1: That is a great question. So Artistry Draft is... Uh, just for people listening, a magical giant suite of programs that will um, allow you to essentially do tons of pre production on your projects. So it, it has like writing tools built into it. It's got like graph tools. Um, you can actually use it as a substitute even for like spreadsheets. So because you can actually create like characters in it and like put spreadsheet type data and then like kind of like fill them out. It's really good for story writing. So um, on a dragon named. Cole, the funny thing is a project that I've never talked anywhere about, um, which we uh, codenamed Cold Steel, we actually used it a ton. Um, That project ended up not working out. Uh, But in that regards, we were using it just for story writing and kind of like putting characters together. And then uh, Dragon Named Cole didn't use it. And then recently with this project, I got really frustrated with um, using uh, Adobe Illustrator to do all of my level designs was how I was approaching it so I was like creating all these different level designs I was like uh oh, Adobe Illustrator you're so dumb why do you do all this stuff like you know and make my life miserable and I'm like I just want to you know rapidly prototype level designs and throw them down and uh, I talked with a friend of mine uh, named Red Vonix who's working on a game called Potato. and I was like how are you managing this you've got like keys all over the place you're working on a Metroidvania you've got you know like all this stuff all over the place like characters and items, you've got to have something other than pen and paper. He's like, yeah, I'm using RTC Draft. I'm like, wait, what do you mean? Like the the writing program? He's like, no, 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 I use only it for level design. And I started talking with him and he gave me all this information. I was like, oh, this works really well. And then I kind of looked at what he was doing and then turned uh, kind of came up with a formula of like, oh, hey, you can actually you know, go through and put your stuff directly into RTC Draft and then, you know, kind of componentize and test stuff out on paper create you know keys and locks and uh link entities together um Rachel now and, and I are even using it now for some writing stuff of like kind of starting to create like prototypes of like our town hub and how that all is going to connect out and you know entry and exit points and all these things that are really difficult to do in Illustrator or even on pen and paper
0: yeah and that's funny that you asked him that question because that's the same question I asked you I was like how are you managing your locations and your items and he pointed me towards it so um I think, yeah, one of the most powerful things, we're not sponsored by Articy or anything, I just want to say, it's just a really helpful tool, um, is being able to tie your location maps into the items in the story events, right? That you can double-click on it, and it, it, um, they call it submerge. You submerge into it, and you can see it's just the integration, right? Because you can draw a map, in illustrator, you can have a text file, you can have this stuff, but it's all separate, and it, Articy just puts it all there and links it.
1: Yeah, the linking is the where the magic really happens with it, because you can, you know, just... Have like a, all sorts of characters and you know pieces of data that can be strewn across multiple uh, like little scenes that you might make. So you might have like seven parts of a town, and you know you might have like doors in seven parts of those town. And you can put those same doors, you know, or maybe special door types in those different maps, and they're all just linked together magically. Which like you know trying to do something like that in Photoshop or Illustrator is a nightmare.
0: So one of the final things I wanted to ask you about, since I know programmers are crazy about optimization, and um, we both use Unity, but there could be some stuff that's just general. So what are some big optimization things that you see other developers doing in games that are wasting a lot of CPU cycles or GPU, whatever they call them?
1: Hmm, good question. I might answer that in a little bit of a different way of what I think is the best way to maybe optimize... And maintain it. Because I guess the question you're asking is code quality, is what they call it in programming. How to maintain yeah. that. So, the biggest thing for me with code quality is, and this is kind of unpopular in games, but I think has been catching on and becoming more accepted. And that is uh, test driven development, or TDD, if you're familiar with that.
0: Is that unit testing? Is that the. Yeah, unit
1: testing is a piece of it. So, um, on a dragon named Cole, I didn't do any testing and I wrote some massive systems. And the systems just got so huge, like I just was getting bugs like everywhere. I'm sure you've run into this before. It's like you wrote this thing that's really cool, but like eventually, after you know, constantly trying to uh, tweak it, you know, and adjust things, it just starts to fall apart. And then you're just kind of stuck with this giant, you know, system in your game, and it's erroring and bugging out, and you don't know why. And I've been starting to uh, go through more of a test driven development approach to our micro systems in the back of the game. So, like, for example, if I'm, like, writing a combat system, I actually write, like, tests around, like, maybe individually, like, a a test suite uh, with an event-driven API to, like, create, like, a a stat system. And, you know, that stat system then plugs into the combat system. And then I'll I'll write, like, a little test-driven, like, timeline tool for the JRPG we're working on. So I went through and did that and, like, built, like, a timeline tool and then pulled that in. And, you know, all of these kind of micro components that make up the the bigger whole of, like, what you're seeing. And it's been nice, like, um, every time, you know, I run into, I want to add a new feature, I just go in, the first thing I do is I write a little test that says, like, oh, like, the timeline, when you remove a character, removes all, you know, instances of that character from the timeline. And I write, like, a little test. And it's just a really, you know, tiny little piece of code. It takes a little extra time, but... Now as I'm you know working on more things going forward, I've added more and more complexity, and it's like oh if I accidentally break you know removing that character, the the test will tell me because I just click a button. It's especially useful for upgrading Unity. So when Unity upgrades, you know just to make sure like everything is still working properly, I just click a button now, in Unity, and it's like boom, it runs like 500 tests plus in like what is it like 10 seconds, and I mean hey that's like. 526 things that I know are working now
0: if I'm completely unfamiliar with the process is there a book is there an article is there something that you would recommend as like an introduction to running these tests or creating them
1: yes there are two different things I would recommend there is a um speech by a guy from unity Three D uh, School, I believe. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all.
0: Oh yeah, I subscribe to his channel. Yeah, Unity Three D yeah.
1: College, right? Yeah, Unity Three D College is what it is. So Unity Three D College, I think I posted a v- video of it actually in the Game Dev Grit channel. It's like a forty-minute video, and he talks about why these things are important for big video games. Like the whole unit testing and code quality stuff is. It wouldn't be, it's, for a smaller project, it wouldn't be too important. But for something big, it is. And he talks about in that video like. Oh, this is why you should do this, and you know, here's kind of how you do it. And then the best thing ever that uh, I came across—I actually moderate uh, a little bit on the Unity Slack channel—and someone posted in there um, this video series. It's like a five-part video that covers um, like unit testing in Unity and has some like really great like design patterns and like ways of approaching things. And it covers uh, going through and just like you know, starting from scratch. And he explains, like, all of the uh, testing principles of, like, the three A's, Arrange, Act, Assert. How do you use those? He goes through creating uh, a builder pattern, which makes testing, like, much quicker and makes it so you don't have to reuse. And he refactors. It's a beautiful course. I'll have to post the link.
0: Okay, yeah. We'll try to post all this stuff in the show notes so you can go check them out. Um, I just thought of something else I wanted to ask you. So, now, how soon in your projects do you start gray boxing your levels and actually playing them a little bit and testing your systems in a build in action?
1: It's a great question. So, uh, for gray boxing or white boxing, um, I essentially use ProBuilder anymore these days. So, like everything is pretty much built with ProBuilder. We actually have no graphics in. I think it's kind of a, tr- this is maybe it's like, Rachel and I have come to the conclusion that it's kind of a trap to put a lot of artwork in early on. I don't yeah, know, maybe yeah. that's just my no, opinion. No, totally
0: that. is. Yeah, no, <laughs> no you've, it's like in in writing and writing films. They talk about like killing your babies and like you know, and falling in love with your ideas and like the mo- the earlier you put them in, like the art or the final stuff, then it makes it harder and harder to to really have an objective view on them. You know, so yeah, in writing, it's the same thing. Like,
1: yeah, no, structure it's structure first. Yeah, it's rough. And you don't think about that because you see all these polished products, you know, all the time on like Twitter and everything. And the truth is, like, a lot of that stuff that people are showing isn't playable. Sometimes it is, but a lot of the time it's just, you know, mocks people have put together. It's like that's why there was that big implosion with, you know, people uh, believing in Kickstarter. At least I felt was because there were so many projects, you know, going on there where it was just like, oh, hey, look at this game and here's all these screenshots of it. When actually they were all just. Still We're frames. going
0: in a different direction but I think what you said is super important cuz I felt the same way. I was working on my game, no graphics, and then you see on Twitter like people's like graphically polished awesome things and you're like, "Oh god, like mine's so terrible, it looks so stupid." But I think cuz I felt this, like that's why I quit Twitter and all social media. It was like you feel like this push, like I need to post things, I need to impress people. So I would imagine because, I mean, it is important, like your visuals, people, everyone judges your game by the way it looks. But I would think that social media-driven development would force you to just focus on the way things looked, right? But it would be broken or, like you said, non-playable.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, there's a couple of people that I've followed and talked with, and I've seen them working on You know, like the same game is still posting screenshots of it like four or five years later. And there's one guy, I probably shouldn't say his name, but uh, uh, I remember he worked on a game for like three years, was following it, screenshots and everything. And then just one day he's just like, I I give up. He's like, none of it works. I have to go and like, because he was building it, I think it went Game Maker. And he's like, I have to go build this in Unity now. Like, it's nothing is functioning and it's just taking forever to do anything.
0: Yeah, I think I picked. I think – I don't know if it's the same thing. I'll never know. But there's a couple projects that I saw people posting on various subreddits and stuff about their games, little slices like fighting this boss or these things that look really cool. And I was following the game, and then the game never came out. They never announced it coming out, and now the person's working on this other two or three projects that now they're posting these graphical slices of, but they don't release any games. So is that like a rise of a – social media pretend game developer
1: (laughs) i don't know and the weird thing is is some of these get like coverage too on like the you know like the big news sites cover these things and they're like oh this is amazing look at this and i mean as, as a person who uh has worked works a lot on the gameplay of things you know side and tries to like get things working really functional and i'm just like i'm like i'm so cool man you know like sometimes even on social media and I'll like post like my code is I'm like, this code's so cool and it does this thing and it's awesome. And then it's just like, but someone you know who posts a screenshot of a game that doesn't exist, they get, you know, on like kutaku or <laughs> IGN or something, and I'm like, Oh, I feel insecure.
0: Yeah, so it's <laughs> it's driven by the ad based, click based economy. So your code doesn't get clicks, but like gif of shiny thing does. But if we follow that model, then we'll just make broken games that never get finished or can't be longer than like five minutes or something you know trying to make a big game especially right
1: oh yeah no it's just like massive uh the amount of work that goes into a big game like we know like right now the project we're working on we're like yep yeah, about three years we're hoping to then you know essentially like move into the more post-production stage of everything
0: Yeah, I find though too, like if you're not getting any attention on the coverage, you really, really, really have to love your idea and you really have to believe in it because if you don't, you'll walk away from it.
1: Oh, yeah. No, without a doubt. I mean, and I guess like what, like, you know, what determines like, you know, you loving the game and, you know, like, why are you doing what you're doing? Is it going to be worth it? And then it's like, can you maybe also, like, one question I wish I would have asked more often would have been like, I guess back to what you're saying earlier about killing your darlings. I'd ask myself like, you know, do I really like you know need these components? You know, like you said, if I hadn't done that so much, I did take a little bit of a social media approach to things and kind of how we were showing stuff off, and that definitely psychologically twists you a little bit when you need to you know start making those posts, um, you know, and getting that traction. It, it it can drive things in a way that. uh might make you cut corners or might make you you know want to put things together that look good to show off versus you know maybe something that's a a core system that will you know carry the game you know through a full horizontal slice
0: yeah social media just made me feel pressured and like trying to develop it on my own is enough wasn't more than enough pressure and so i was just like i can't deal with this too you know and and i couldn't just keep saying well soon soon you know it's like whatever so i just left (laughs)
1: Oh yeah, no, it can get crazy. I mean, even too, when we posted a dragon named Cole, um, and we got like just floods of comments. Like, I didn't even know what to do with like hundreds of comments in like courses of days. Like, we were featured on Newgrounds a bunch of places. I remember just having like a total meltdown of like all the requests, like everyone was making. And I'm like, you know, people are like, "Oh, I'm not, like, I will never play this game," or "I'm not." I'm like giving it like one star, you know, and I'm not gonna like upvote it until you fix the controls. Blah blah blah. I mean, stuff like that is just like. It's kind of traumatizing, and I think you can deal with that a little easier when you're, you know, in more of like the game is done and like,
0: yeah, because you you fought all the battles with yourself and with the game already. You know, when it's still up in the air, then those things really damage you or can really cause you to doubt yourself and your ideas. I think.
1: Oh no, it's not just think you're totally one hundred percent right about that. I mean, when you know, some person's like, you know, throwing shit at you is the best way I can describe it. Um, online or, or shade, I guess is the term these days. Getting like, you know, all the shade on you, and it's just like you're in a very, very dark place with tons of shade of like, oh, I want these things and you know, need all this stuff. Because as a developer, like I guess I hope people on I wish people on the real line would realize more, like, hey, as developers and people creating these games or game creators, we know these things already. And we're already insecure about them. When someone gets online, you know, and rips us apart, it all it does is it makes us more insecure probably hurts the product
0: i think too it became a thing you know there's whole youtube channels and social media phenomenons where people make a lot of money where all they do is like rip on like mainstream games and then i think people kind of just forget and they see any game you know and they think oh that you know it's like bethesda or whatever it's like dude i'm not bethesda i'm one guy so like it just became a thing to kind of like trash the games and i mean we should be held to a certain standard but it's like hey we're just people like doing this with our own money like we're not being paid for it it's not our you know
1: oh yeah no it sums up a lot of what a friend of mine kyle pulver who's currently working on uh super meat boy said on twitter and he essentially was like oh man you ever uh talk with someone about video games and then go oh my gosh they're a redditor oh no i don't want to talk with them anymore as a game developer talking to a consumer And the fact that, you know, I've heard other devs point this out of like, they're like, oh, I hate Reddit. It depends on what Reddit channels you're on. But it's really sad, you know, when developers do want to communicate with their fans, but it's just they become so aggressive. Like, uh, even like, what was it, Anthem, which debatable, like, Anthem has had a lot of problems, but just I'm on the Reddit board in there. And it's just horrifying to see some of the things that people say, like people spend like day is creating gifs just to harass the developers it's insane
0: yeah so it is a tough thing my philosophy now and it's kind of what I do with my movies is just like it's in the oven um it's cooking i'm working you know it's it's in process i'm not going to post you know much about it i'm not going to open up that part of it then when it's done and i've like hardened to myself and i know what the game is and i believe in it then i can open it up to the world and like go ahead and say your things but you know
1: yeah there's definitely a time to share and definitely a time to wait and i think like like it's saying like those tiers of production like you know during production maybe not but post-production it's like okay it's like you know more, sa- more safe to post this because I'm secure in who my game is. I guess is the best way to describe it.
0: Yeah, and there's a thing that a lot of people think and say, and a lot of it is fallacies. You know, as far as like social media, you need to have it for promotion. You know, you can't just write, you can't just drop your game, you know, and say it's out now and post it somewhere and expect something to happen. But I think there's another way to look at it because Seth Godin, who's like this epic marketing dude, just written all these books on marketing, Purple Cow, and like all this stuff. He he says he talks about the word remarkable. And purple cow is one of his books. And he's like, you know, if everyone's game is a cow, then you need to make a purple cow, you know, one that's remarkable and stands out on its own, which can do a lot for you. But if we're just making generic games like anything else, yeah, you need years of social media, you need to like con people into liking your game. But I think it's a lot of pressure. But it's like, hey, why don't we just try to make remarkable games? And then um, my new philosophy is just like, all right, I'll finish the game. And I won't release it for a year. I'll just do start doing promotion then. And then release it, you know, rather than trying to do it all at once.
1: Yeah, no, there, it is a, things like, a lot of people get deceived about this though, because you see, you know, these big indie games and they're they're literally, you know, labeled indie. And then, you know, like they, they do post, you know, and they do make all this noise. Like they've got, you know, trailers coming out. And like, for example, like a lot of people think Ori and the Blind Forest is an indie made game. And it's not, it's, It's sponsored by Microsoft. There's nothing wrong with that. And those guys did an amazing job. But, you know, as indies, people need to know that, like, hey, like these games that do do all this stuff at the same time, they actually have like multiple people. They're paying them lots of money. It's not what you expect looking at it up front.
0: And we can't compare ourselves to them because they're on a different track. They're operating in a different space, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Different space, different way of approaching things. Um I mean the team size is much larger. Also, a lot of people even forget too, like um if a game, an indie game is usually published by a big studio, um, that studio usually or a big publisher, that publisher usually jumps in at the end of it actually to help out a ton. So they actually do a bunch of marketing. They do all that marketing for them.
0: Um yeah, they, they, they do money. yeah,
1: taking it to like conferences, they do that, you know, like all of the stuff you see these people like, how are they doing all that? It's usually because like devolver is a great uh place to work with that actually does a good job at like helping indies with these types of things and there's like a couple others out there but uh yeah it's it, it can be kind of deceptive though when it because a lot of times it's you know the game is pitched as being hey this one person or you know two or three people just did this on their own
0: yeah and that's what i hope to do with this this podcast it's just like hey you know if you're working on it alone or with a super small team here are some people that are doing the same thing this is the world we live in this is our perspective like maybe you can scope it down and you know have some people that you can kind of relate to on our problems and stuff like that
1: yeah and there's always more problems every week to deal with
0: yeah (laughs) and uh we just gotta we gotta what how would you um how would you adapt the cliche take it one day at a time to scrum
1: <laughs> uh, that's a great question so cliche one day at a time um yeah i would say that uh hmm,
0: one sprint at a time one yeah
1: what? One, one sprint at a time so like we don't know how many sprints our game is going to require we just you know every iteration we kind of like Try to figure out like a focal point of like doing a scene, and you know, try to add a little bit more content and features to that. And that takes about a month, and then we do another one. Um, I don't know. Is that does that answer the question? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I would be a sprint. I just meant like, uh, I guess like like, how do you atomize? You know, what's the smallest unit of a of Scrum? You know, in a sprint, oh, is it yeah. a task or is it a what are they called?
1: I can't remember. That's tickets. I, I, don't, I think there's just let's just call them tickets for now. I think there's a specific term, but yeah, like you can be dangerous with that because you can over itemize um, and just be like, you know, end up with like dumb things on your sprint board that are just kind of like, oh, like, <laughs> why why do I need to, you know, put on my sprint board that you know I need to like delete this specific file that's just sitting in my repository or something like that. Like you don't need stuff like that. Like I guess where. The minimum ticket should kind of be is like, okay, is this a, you know, a deliverable feature that adds uh, value to the project? And if that thing is not a deliverable feature that adds some form of value to it, it probably shouldn't be in there, or it should be combined with something else.
0: That made me think of one thing, kind of, kind of related. I watched this uh, lecture by the guys who made The Witcher, the team that makes The Witcher, and they have oh, yeah, a CD board. Yeah, where they were talking about when they're thinking about creating new mechanics or new new features in their game, they have this little board and they go, how many hours of fun will this add to the player and how many days of development will it take and then they weigh them. So of course, if the days are longer than the fun, they don't do it. But
1: oh, that's that's really clever. Yeah, that's uh it's hard like there were, it reminds me of an article I read a while back called like how do you measure fun in a game? And it was like, it had an example of like a grenade and it's like, well, we can build the grenade like really, really quickly. But if we add fun into it, it then it increases, you know, the amount of time that that grenade takes to make. It was interesting.
0: Yeah. And I think um, something that I get stuck up, stuck on are like these little details that don't add anything at all to the fun, but I just start getting stuck on them when I'm working on my systems. And that's where I kind of refer back to that CD project, red And be like, what am I doing? No one cares about this. Like, don't do it. It's not fun and no one cares.
1: Well, I've heard it described as um, with like a, a scrum type mentality or agile. They say uh, if what you're making is not deliverable to a client or someone other than you, then you shouldn't really do that thing because there's no like monetary value. And, and like you, this can get like a little weird at times and like sometimes it's not always the case of what you should do. But that you know that idea of a monetary value that you can actually like play and like experience is kind of like a good benchmark for that.
0: Yeah, or it would be like a playable value in our game development case or something, maybe something like that.
1: Totally. The the catch with that though is like talking about the skill tree system, like the I built as an example. Um, that required a bit of like putting little pieces in, so I could just play them. So like for the first time I did the skill tree, it was like okay, it's just a tree of nodes. And, like, they don't actually do anything, you know, they're just in the game. So that was, like, the first piece I built. And then after that, I went and I was like, okay, now, like, this tree needs to, you know, actually be connected to, like, the attacks of the characters. So then that was, like, another pass. And then after that, it was like, okay, these individual, like, nodes on the tree, you know, actually uh, tie back into um, uh, upgrading those individual, like, abilities on the tree. So it kind of was like these three different passes to build this like giant thing. But every time I had to make sure that I was building something there you know, that you could like physically play in the game.
0: Yeah, that got me thinking. I know I was trying to end the podcast because over half an hour, but it got me thinking about something else. What is like when you're working on some detail like that, maybe the player doesn't see. Um like for example, I was talking to you about this privately. I, I have this emotion system for my enemies where Under the hood, using a utility system, I am constantly updating and changing the enemy's current emotion, which the player never saw. It's just used for the enemy's behavior tree to make decisions. So then I'm like, okay, I put all this time into it. It works for that. But now how can I take this unseen system and make it visible to the player? Like, is there a tool that the player can use to access those emotions and change them, some kind of bullet that does that? Or can I create a visual so the enemy changes color? But I think that's something we can do too, to like, if we have these invisible systems, to try to make them visible and then playable, can kind of add another angle to them.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to, when you're kind of like coming through your tickets, it's supposed to force you to like, you know, every time, every ticket you write, you should be like, oh, okay, like, is there some way to... Visually experience that. And I guess with your emotion system, that would be like, oh, if the AI is, you know, like changing based on that, then it makes sense. But some of these things that are more invisible, sometimes, I guess the idea is if you're just focusing on things that are visible, the invisible things will get worked into those tickets as you work on them. So um, I'm trying to think of a concrete example of that. of Like, you might have, uh, for example, like a a stats system in the back of your game um you know for like hp or something like that and you probably would just you would have a ticket and the ticket would be like okay a character you know dies after they get hit a couple of times or whatever so then inadvertently you would end up writing that hp system into you know the back of your game even though that really wasn't a task on a ticket
0: yeah all right. Well, this was a great episode, Ash. Thanks for being on. I hope to have you back on as you go forward with your game so you can keep us updated. Is there any final things you want to say out to the the gritty game developers out there who are filthy working on their games?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing for me I think is important and people I know who made great games follow this philosophy and that is uh, just make sure you uh, keep at it and... Uh, be willing to take breaks but uh it's good just to work one to two hours a day on things if you got a day job if you do full-time you're lucky and that's awesome but uh yeah keep at it keep putting a few hours in all the time
0: okay cool thank you for being on the game dev grip podcast
1: yeah thanks for having me